Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Political Party. And I'm sorry it's been so long uh, since the last one, obviously, with the Edinburgh Festival. And then the first show back, I was meant to be joined by Godfrey Bloom, the former UKIP member of the European Parliament. Um, But in the end, he decided against it. That was just a couple of days after he decided that it was a good idea, on the other hand, to um, describe certain women as sluts. So there you go, that's political judgment for you. I was gutted, really, that he couldn't do it, because I was looking forward to talking to him. But we returned uh, just a few weeks ago with Tom Watson down at the St James's Theatre. A man, of course, I was very keen to talk about as a Blairite, uh, about uh, the fall of Tony Blair, his role in it, uh, his role in Gordon Brown's leadership, and eventually... Uh, the departure of, of Labour from office, and of course recently, more recently, his appearance at the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, grilling at the Murdochs about phone hacking and other issues uh, at News International, and even more recently, the stuff that's gone on in Falkirk with Selection Row, where he's been very close to the to the protagonists. Uh, his view of that um, is very candid. Uh, his account of his relationship with News International is absolutely fascinating. But I have to say, overall, he was uh, a little less bullish than I expected. And sometimes when you meet people that have a reputation as being a bit of a bruiser, that can be the case. And that's what's so um, so important, really, about these shows, is that it will challenge your uh, perceptions of these people. And it will challenge mine as well, even people that I've met before um, in this sort of format. Um, sometimes people can be very different and, and maybe more charming than you expect. And Tom, uh, on the night, I know people really uh, warmed to him and were really brought in, particularly by the News International stuff. So he's very candid about uh, Ed Miliband's handling of Falkirk. Um, he's really open about what went on with News International. Um, but the Blair stuff um, was difficult to talk about uh, in the end. Uh, partly because, you know, when you're talking to someone, and as you'll hear Tom say, his reasons for doing something, uh, sometimes you have to accept the answer that they're giving you uh, on a night like this. So he was absolutely great. It was a great evening. Um, We've got the guests announced for the next three shows. I'll announce them at the end of the podcast, just add a bit of tension to proceedings. But enjoy the show, and, uh, yeah, enjoy the interview as well. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the St James Theatre International Arena. It's time to start the show, so please put your hands together. Whoop and cheer, welcome to the stage, the man who puts the party into politics, it's Mr Matt Ford! Hello, everyone! Hello, I think, the, uh, I think the announcer's overstretched his brief a little bit, but there we go. Hello, welcome. Welcome to the St. James Theatre. Welcome along. Uh, I'm Matt Ford. Give me a cheer if you've been to the political party before. Yay! Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yay! Oh, plenty of newbies, plenty of newbies. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, the drill is, uh, I'll do a bit of stand-up in the first half, and then I'll be joined by a political guest in the second half. I'll interview them, we'll find out about them and their career, talk about the things they've been up to, find out about, uh, a bit about them. So who's read Damien McBride's book? All right. <laughs> fucking up. One person, me. Oh, this is fucking tragic, isn't it? If you hadn't read it, crikey. I'm sure some people have read it. It is absolute, for those of you, that, for the uninitiated, Damien McBride uh, was one of Gordon Brown's key right-hand men. Uh, he wrote a book called, uh, Spin, whatever the fuck it was, basically called, I'm a twat. Uh, <laughs> 
I'm a twat, please don't hate me anymore by Damien McBride. Uh, I think most people don't know. I've been saying to my mates, oh, McBride, McBride. A mate of mine thought McBride was a woman who got married in McDonald's. So I think most people... <laughs> Which we have absolutely no idea who is, but for the, if you haven't read it, I, I, it's called Power Trip. It's absolutely phenomenal. It is the inside account of what it was like to work at Gordon Brown's Treasury and then work for Gordon Brown in number 10. And he just... Damien McBride was a man who was fired uh, in the end, or he resigned, was fired over... Uh, he set up a website where he was going to effectively smear uh, Tory MPs and their, and their wives. So it was serious stuff in the end is the reason he had to go. But he basically just admits everything. The whole thing is just a massive confession. And we're going, and then I did this. And then it's like, I don't know if you've seen the Goonies, the bit where Chunk confesses to everything. <laughs> it's like the Fratellis got hold of Damien McBride and went, tell us everything. He went, in third grade, I ate all the chocolate. In fourth grade, I started boozing. In fifth grade, I pushed my, I pushed my sister down the stairs and blamed it on Tony Blair. <laughs> Absolutely. It just admits that he hated Tony Blair and his whole career was geared. Absolutely geared towards removing this man from office. It's for, it's, seriously, no one read it. The thing that amazes me most wasn't that Damien McBride and, uh, well, he just admits that he you know, was fiercely loyal to Gordon Brown, which you can understand in politics. You know, you get these towering figures, you feel loyal to them. Um, I worked in politics for a while, I worked with MPs that I sort of felt loyal to, not to that degree, uh, I have to say. But what is amazing is he was able to function. The amount he was drinking, he was drinking, it was like having like 10 pints at lunch and then going back 10 pints at night. This is no exaggeration, by the way, he was absolutely flooring it in terms of booze. Over the budget days, he'd, get, he'd go 48 hours, no sleep, all stuff like this. Now, I had a very brief career in politics. And being hungover, working in politics, is not a good idea. Just, out of, just by means of a cheer, who here works in the political arena? There are far more people here, I know for a fact. I know more people than that that actually work in it. Being hungover, I mean, whenever I worked for the day party for a couple of years, I worked for a couple of MPs. Whenever I was hungover at work... It was an utter, there's no way I could write a book about it because I don't remember some of it. I remember once being so hungover at a Labour Party conference, I took a young lady to interview Tony Blair. But, you know, it, was set, well, it wasn't just an idea, I had pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to introduce you to someone. That <laughs> hey! No, it was, uh, you know, we'd set it up for the website. It was a young girl from Corby because it was a marginal seat. Interview Tony Blair on the website. And I must have looked like, I, don't, I swear to God, the night before I didn't get up to anything. I just got really, really drunk. And I was just carrying water around with me, which is always a sort of bad sign, isn't it? I remember going into Blair's office and just going, um, Hi, Matt. I've got, uh, got a young girl here to interview you, mate. And he went, Was it you that puked outside the hotel? <laughs> I don't, I don't think so, mate. <laughs> Must have been one of the kids. Send her in. And that was it. So like, I'd ever want to be hung over in front of a Prime Minister again. So uh, the only other time I got really... I think every time I met him, I was hammered. Because I worked in the regions, right, out in the provinces, right? So any time I got to meet Blair, it was either at a reception at number 10, or he's leaving do one of his leaving dues at Checkers for the Labour Party staff. Now, I only have a hazy memory of this, but they laid a hog roast out on the lawn, and they had loads of beer and stuff like that. I got absolutely trashed. And then you're running around checkers. It was amazing. And then I remember them saying, oh, you have to leave by the side exit. I said, but my coat's out in the thing. So you, <laughs> so you need to leave around the side. I said, oh, fucking checkers, man. I've only been here five minutes. It's already pissed me off. And then well, the reason why they were doing you out the side exit was because Tony Blair was there, shaking your hand on the way out. And he was just sort of stood there in his chinos and his jacket, looking up at the night sky. Uh, and I went, oh, Derby. <laughs> he said, uh, I can't remember what he said, but I just said, Two words, mate. And in his chest went, fucking legend. <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs>
Sorry about. So I'm sure, sure you're a legend as well. Uh, get home safe and. Uh, yeah. Fucking hell, it's horrible. I mean, it's a, you know, arguing it's a decent story, but it's not. At the time, you just think my career is over. It's not the sort of thing I would ever want to sort of like lionise or, or, or show off about. But McBride's book, if, if you love political gossip, there is sort of like a secret footballer for politics. Read it because you you'll devour it and it's great. The big. Um, the big stuff, really, that's happened since last year, of course, we've got back from conference season. Did anyone go to the party conferences, by the way? Oh, God! How tragic! The people who went with didn't even sound happy about it. Yeah, yeah, I know. Who went to the Labour Party conference? Oh, people sound genuinely in agony. People are still, got, people are still getting flashbacks. That's the problem. I went to the Labour conference, and it wasn't... I mean, I think it depends when you start going. I started going to the Blair era, so you had like Blair, bang, bang, Brown, Bosch, and now you've got Miliband, and you just think, when did we go non-league? <laughs> so I turned up to Old Trafford going, how can they play in five a side? I thought this was a Champions League game. What? <laughs> Jesus. It all just felt a little bit... Yeah, I watched it in a cinema. Uh, in the Odeon, was showing it in Brighton, so I watched it in the cinema, so that I didn't want to appear disloyal on TV, do you know what I mean? Or eat Maltesers on TV. Uh, or a big hot dog on TV, or two pints of Stella on TV. So I went to the, I went to the uh, Odeon and just sort of gorged in this sort of like private cell watching it. Uh, I don't know what people thought of Ed Miliband's speech. I mean, I, I didn't ask given the reception that he got. But people were genuinely saying, down there, it's a great speech, great speech, Ed Miliband, great speech you gave. Oh, yeah, probably the best of his career. I mean, the last one's probably true. Um, that's not really saying much. Uh, people were genuinely sort of taken by it. And there were, there were certain bits in the speech that frustrated me. There was the bit where... He talked about the northeast of England. And he said, You know, uh, the Tories, uh, they want to allow fracking there uh, in the northeast because. Uh, no, come on, come on, we're better than this. Come on, please. Uh, 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 they want to allow fracking there because one of their ministers said, You know what he said? Conference. <laughs> it's hard not to do, it's quite camp, actually. Uh, he said that the northeast was a desolate waste ground. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, let's tell the Tories about the North East. And he went on this sort of rant, right? Very impassioned, but he said stuff like this. He said, you know, people in the North East, they care about their communities. They look out for their families. They care about each other. It was this very sort of homespun, North London view of Northern people, which was, they're really nice, and they drink tea, and they... Never once said they've got universities there. People pass their GCSEs up there, you know, now, Ed. I mean, there's all sorts of clever people up there. They've got football teams. I, I've got, I thought that the speech was going to end with him going, let's tell them about the North East. Look, people care about their communities. They believe in family values. They wipe their feet. They stroke their cats. They eat their pies. Oh. <laughs> patronising. Really patronising. You know, afterwards, I was chatting to him. Oh, I'm a Blairite. And uh, I'd sort of... People, <laughs> if, the, if, the least, if the most I get is a tut, I think that's... No, that's actually a very positive comment on 10 years in Downing Street, uh, his. Um, the people after said, I thought that was amazing. And I'd say, yeah, but for Ed it was amazing. It wasn't actually amazing, was it? We'd go, no, it was great. I thought it was really, really good. It really, really appealed to me. <coughs> yeah, but... It, it, <laughs> like, but not, like, properly appealed to you. Like, it was, like, in the new context of where we are politically, Yeah. No, 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 I actually thought it was excellent. I spoke to at least 100 people that night. It was like the biggest... It was like talking to someone who swore blind their favourite film was Waterworld. (laughs) No, I didn't say what favourite Kevin Costner film of the 90s. I said... (laughs) But ever. This is a dreadful, dreadful wind-up. I just had to end up sort of like keep... 
keeping myself strong. And then I always have to conference season. We had the big reshuffle, uh, the three reshuffles, Tory, Lib Dem and Labour, which were sort of middle rank, weren't they? So they, it wasn't the big drama that we've... Maybe we'll get one before General Election Day where it's the big drama. But what, there are a number of things about the reshuffle. Firstly, the appointment of Norman Baker to a home office. Of all the places to put a conspiracy theorist, stick him in the home office. Give him a torch and a, give him a, torch and a little Sherlock Holmes hat while you're at it. So, mate. That's basically the Wonka factory for conspiracy theorists. Oh, Baker. You can just imagine there with a little flask of tea going through all the files. Come with me. Jesus, a conspiracy theory. Those of you that aren't familiar with Norman Baker, even by Lib Dem standards, he's mad. That's how mad Norman Baker, even the Lib Dems go, okay, no, he's a bit weird. That's how weird Norman Baker is, right? He thinks that, uh, well, the, the, the view of Norman Baker is this. He wrote a book called The Death of Dr. David Kelly. People think what he said was that the British government killed him and covered it up. Actually, what he alleges is that the British government colluded with the Iraqi government which at the time was headed by a guy called Saddam Hussein, who, I don't know if you read in the papers at the time, sort of persona non grata in the West. Uh, <laughs> apparently we colluded with him. The Iraqis killed him and we covered it up, right? That, and he wrote this book. It's been published. At least one person bought it. And now he's like, you're like, you can't be a conspiracy... Like, that is... That's slightly off the scale. You wouldn't expect an MP to think that. Now a Minister of the Crown, would you, to think that? The problem is, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you don't just buy into one, do you? You don't meet anyone who says... Um, I think everything else uh, is absolutely explainable, but I think Tony Blair did 7-7. People go, no, 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 9-11, 7-7, Diana, you know, whatever, you know, JFK, all the others, right? You know, um, Forrest getting relegated in 1993, all the sort of big ones. <laughs> the sentences all go together. There's no way that Norman Baker is only a conspiracy theorist about Dr. David Kelly. There's no way that he says, ah, grassy knoll, are you full of shit, mate? No, no, no. Towers always collapse like that, but David Kelly definitely... <laughs> He will have conspiracies on everything. I want to get him on here. I want to get him on here. I invited him. He turned me down, right? But what I wanted to do was I'd play a massive wind-up on him where I'd interview him in the second half and say, OK, in the second half, uh, we'll take some questions up from the... Norman, no one else can hear this. It's just me and you, Norman. I know what you did. From the gallery, and then we'll see who else gets on. OK. You're right, Norman. There's no way that he's any conspiracy... I mean, everything he's, in his life must be... It must be so frustrating when you're a conspiracy theorist. I mean, he must spend half of his time online, for starters. Most of them do. He'll be up at night on forums, plotting. <laughs> <laughs> everything will have a different explanation in his house. You can just imagine. Even the smallest things. Conspiracy. It's all a conspiracy. It's not real. No, the conspiracy is the conspiracy. Norman, we're out of milk. Listen to me. I'm just trying to have a normal conversation with you. Where's the milk gone? Oh, those fucking aliens. I don't believe it. They've got to you as well. The rest of the reshuffle, um, th- I think the most uh, modern thing about it, probably the most notable thing about the reshuffle, about Cameron's reshuffle, was that he did it on Twitter. Uh, hashtag reshuffle. <laughs> Who else followed it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's me and Norman Baker, probably. <laughs> Truth Hunter 9000, or whatever he calls himself on Twitter. I was following it on... Th- <laughs> I was following it on Twitter, and uh, people were sort of saying, oh, this is a bit out of order, following it on Twitter. I was like, yeah, but all Cameron's doing is announcing what he would already announce in his press briefings or through traditional methods, but just shorter. Like, I think people thought he was going, Jeremy Brown moved from home office, lol. Like, it's not... He wasn't taking the piss on there. He saying, oh, you can't bring social media into it, you can't bring... I think you can. I think Twitter's fine. I think it would have been out of order if he'd have done it through any other social media. I think if he'd have done it on Vine... That would have been a bit out of order. David! You're fired. That would have been a bit... 
that would have been a bit skank. If it had done it on Grinder, that would have been amazing. <sighs> oh, God, I've just been sacked as a Home Office Minister, but one bloke in Loughton says he wants to go through me. I mean, it swings around a bit, doesn't it? It swings around. <laughs> oh, the best, the best story I've read. And this is this week, Nicholas Soames, Winston Churchill's grandson, right, has had, has had a discussion with a Tory MP called Adam Afraye. Now... Adam Afray, for those of you who don't know, is a Tory MP who really wants to be Prime Minister and leader of the Tory party, but literally no one else in his party shares that vision. <laughs> this is a minority of one, right? So it's very, very difficult for him to manoeuvre any leverage. Now, what's happened is, Cameron said we're going to have a referendum on our membership of the EU in 2017. In other words, vote for me and you'll get a referendum. It's to make people vote Tory again. That's the whole idea. Adam Afray has gone, no, 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 I, uh, I think we should have it next year. I think we should have it next year before the election. That is the only difference, right? They both agree that we need to renegotiate our position on the EU, and they both agree that that should be done with a referendum with the British people. Uh, there's really not... Uh, all the differences is, do we have it next year or in a couple of years? That is the only... There's no real difference of principle. That didn't stop a guy called Nicholas Soames, Churchill's grandson, who I absolutely adore. He's the sort of big, rotund uh, Tory MP. Now, this is from the Daily Mail, so... Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I, I, I really believe them on this particular story. <laughs> this apparently happens in the Commons Tea Room. On, I think this, this happened on Monday. Um, if you don't like swearing, by the way, close your fucking ears. <laughs> Mr. Soames told Eurosceptic Mr. Afraye. Now, this is in the Tea Room in Parliament, where it's all leather band, the clinking of china, talk about a few things, swill some tea. You're a chateau-bottled, nuclear-powered cunt. <laughs> what? Chateau-bottled, nuclear... I mean, he's topical, if nothing else. <laughs> nuclear-powered... In a tea room. You nuclear-powered... Two teas, please. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, a custard tart to go, you fucking... It goes on. You're totally fucking disloyal, a fucking disgrace to your party, your MPs, your Prime Minister and your fucking country. <laughs> oh, just, just two caramel tarts, please. <laughs> My God! I mean, I've been in rooms before, I've been in awkward rooms before. You know where you're in like a busy train or you're in a pub or even in like a meeting room at work and everyone's in separate conversations and then the one time you say anything lewd, the whole room hears it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that was the thing. With my cock out. Uh, got a chicken farm. Uh. <laughs> Imagine that. Shatter bottle, nuclear powered cap. There must have been at least one person who just went. <laughs> Surely you did. I think, did I hear, did my ears deceive me? He just called him a chateau bottom. Nu- I mean, knowing Afraye. Afraye was the guy, by the way, that when I think the Daily Mail ran a story that it was worth £15 million, his office rang them to correct them and actually it was uh, 150 <laughs> That's the sort of politician he is. Knowing afraid, the bit he'll have taken exception with is the nuclear bit. What a... You rotter! You rotter, Soames! You absolute rotter! You know I'm a fan of renewables. <laughs> you bastard. Oh, my God. I mean, just the idea that sort of like two years is... The reason why Soames is mad is because he's just saying, I want a referendum sooner than that. How do you get in an argument like that? Hey, do you think we should leave the EU? Yeah, I do, yeah. Great. A kindred spirit at last. Do you think we should have a referendum? Yes, I do, actually. I think the British people need to have their say. Ah, oh, good to meet you, old chum. When do you think we should have it next... When do you think we should have it next year? You bastard! <laughs> I never met the like of it! How can you get annoyed over, like, two years? 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that concludes the first half. In the second half, I'm going to be joined uh, by a man who has, has played a part in some of the, in terms of the political theatre of the last ten years, played a leading part in some of the big moments in, in parliamentary and political history. So I'm sure the second half is going to be absolutely wonderful. Uh, for the time being, as always, you've been a phenomenal crowd. I've been Matt Ford. I'll see you in the second half. Good night. <laughs> Welcome back. Are we on? Are we fine? Are we good? Excellent. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Well, uh, we've had uh, many esteemed guests here from across the political spectrum uh, since we started in the political party. We had George Galloway, Nigel Farage, Charles Clark, Lambert Opick, Tim Lawton, uh, Jack Straw and Matthew Parrish. We were meant to have Godfrey Bloom uh, last month, um, but he didn't, he didn't turn up and uh, he asked me to say personally, he apologises to all you sluts, that... Uh, <laughs> But you couldn't make it. Uh, but we've always, I've always managed to get, and one thing I've been very grateful of all my guests, is to get people who are either at the time sort of in the zeitgeist or have played parts in, in big moments in history. And I think it's really fascinating to talk to people, politicians, whether you agree with them or not, about what motivates them and what it was like to see those sort of great moments in modern history and what it was like to, to live them. And tonight's guest is absolutely no exception. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please raise the roof for Mr Tom Watson. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Give yourself a seat. Hello. So, Tom, you've, uh, you've been present at some incredible moments in, in history, and we'll, 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 go through them. we'll go through them all. Uh, the Select Committee, of course, where you held to account the, the Murdochs and, and Coulson and uh, Rebecca Brooks, uh, your resignation uh, over the, sort of what was going on in Falkirk, and the first sort of big resignation from your job as Defence Minister uh, under... Um, the, the greatest Prime Minister that this country's ever had. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tony Blair. Yeah. Um, thinking about that, that first sort of resignation, which was, in terms of the public consciousness, was what, I suppose, really thrust you into the national limelight. And what it was like to go through that period where Blair handed over to Brown. And effectively, it was, the end of Blair was something that you, you effectively caused. Um, when you wrote that resignation letter and, and, and when you sort of published it, did you have any idea that it would lead to his almost immediate removal? Uh, oh, man, that's... Um, do, you, do you know what? People said it was a sort of a, a coup and it was choreographed and stuff. It, it, it wasn't a coup, it was a riot. Um, and um, it, it wasn't as planned. People said there was a thing called a, the Curry House coup. And in fact, Rebecca Brooks said it a lot. In, she's given evidence and various committees and said this sort of thing and it was in the papers. It wasn't true. Um, it was more random and slightly wild than that. And so I, for me, personally, it was, a, you know, it was a personal decision. It wasn't a sort of uh, big corporate thing. And, and uh, Tony had done an interview with The Times where he said he was going to go sort of on for quite a long time. And I'd been a defence minister uh, f from the... May in that in that period, and it was quite tough. You know, there were there, there were some tough things going on in Afghanistan. There was a sort of rise of IEDs and all sorts of sort of dilemmas that defence ministers faced. And then, uh, you know, and every night I would go home, and in the bottom of my red box would be. This is supposed to be a comedy night, so you've asked me the question, <laughs> which is totally depressing. I'm very sorry to the audience, but I mean, there was a. The last thing you got when any service 
member of the services died, either either in active service or sort of in doing things beyond that, you would get a description of the person, you know, and it would say name, age, marital status, religion, and I would read these every night, and increasingly I found it very difficult to be a defence minister in, a, in, a, in that government, and so there was, that in, there was that conversation in the back of my mind, he did this interview, and then you know, lots of my colleagues started sort of ringing up phone calls, you know, what do you think of this? Do you think we need to sort of do something about it? And so it was a, qu- it was a very tough decision because, remember, I, I'd, been, I'd had a journey in the Labour Party. I loved Tony Blair. You know, I remember him getting elected in the early 90s. I was a young officer of the Labour Party. I'd, I'd, I'd helped get him elected. I'd done lots of things. I admired him. I'd, you know, really put my faith and you know, commitment and many hours of personal time into supporting him. So it was a, a huge decision to make and be part of it. And, you know, these things are never sort of fully thought out. But when I did it, I understood how powerful it would be. And the reaction was obviously so, you know, brutal. It's quite a big deal. And, uh, you, you know, you never really sort of... Um, understand how it's going to be until you've gone through and it. it was a really tough time. Obviously you, you talk about Rebecca Brooks there and, and, and her view of it and p- people, other people's view of it obviously because it then started this sort of mass wave of PPSs and junior ministers sort of deciding to sort of sign letters and, yeah. and then names just kept getting added and then number 10 was trying to sort of get names to say you should stay, you should stay so it, it started to sort of it, 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 it picked a scab really um, in the Labour Party that had been brewing for a while um, but did did you sort of feel any, despite the sort of weight of being a defence minister, and obviously the fact that you were sort of more aligned with Gordon than you were with Tony, did you feel any sort of, was there any sort of guilt, or did you feel bad? Did oh, you feel like you'd let yeah. him down? Or? Oh, I mean, like, you know, I, I love the Labour Party. I believe in Labour governments. I think, I think Labour governments are better than Conservative governments. I want to make the world a better place. I joined as a young member at the age of 15. I campaigned for the Labour Party before I was old enough to be a member. And had been part of the Blair journey. So it was a hugely decisive life decision to sign that letter uh, and be part of it. And so, yes, it was, uh, an, you know, it was a moment I probably replay more than I should, uh, but you know, that's, that's politics. And, um, y- y- you know, could you do these things again differently? Yes, of course you could. Um, but at the time, the Labour Party was, you know, there was a sort of boiling pot of ideas and people were like, you know, the post-Iraq settlement, it was, all, it was very uncertain. And, you know, he'd, he'd taken a different path. The Parliamentary Labour Party was in a different space. And I took an individual decision. You, you know, the interesting thing is the way it's been reported in some of the biographies and mm. stuff is that it was a sort of finely choreographed sort of military operation. It, it wasn't that. It, it was chaotically executed sort of expression of sort of dissent uh, as a result of sort of people just having it you know, having had enough of it. And, um, but the thing was, I mean, it looked, it looked choreographed, didn't it? Because <laughs> cause there was your letter, and then obviously there were a lot of other MPs, particularly in the West Midlands, and then we yeah. were very close to Gordon, and then you'd been seen at, with Gordon in Scotland sort of yeah. a couple of days before. Yeah, I, lo- lo- I mean, if you sort of 
if you sort of piece it together looking at the sort of way it was reported in the press um, it looks terrible I, I readily admit that and uh, you, you know there's no there's no escaping that and um, <coughs> you know the sort of parody that they sort of portray you the, the, the sort of commentators portray politicians as is you know they, they do certain things and they sort of they sort of parodied me as a sort of a fixer and organiser because I used to be a Labour Party organiser for Tony actually and um, y- you know the, the, the actual truth is I'm a terrible organiser I'm very disorganised <laughs> a lot of the time very chaotic but I mean the the media images I've sort of got this very sort of precision sort of operation and, and so because I put my name to it and I guess I was the only minister that, that, it, that it became more than it was and um, became a significant moment and in, in fact the journey to Scotland was, um, I mean, now you ask me, and I don't want to bore the audience, but, uh, I, I mean, I, I was supposed to be visiting the Earl Haig poppy factory on the Wednesday. I was a defence minister of that week. And um, so I, I'd sort of, you know, we'd got a, I'd said to my wife, Look, let's go to Edinburgh for a few days beforehand. We'll, we'll do both things together. I'll do this work thing, and we get a few days together. And stupidly... I'd sort of told her we'll go to Edinburgh and then forgotten it was the Edinburgh Festival. I couldn't get a hotel booking. So um, I rang up my predecessor, Peter Snape, and said, look, Peter, I've done this terrible thing. I promised Siobhan we'd do this. We're going to take the baby, blah, blah, blah. Your mate runs this hotel in St Andrews. Is there any chance you could give me his number? I'll sort this out. And, and of course, we went to St Andrews. And Siobhan said, well, you've got this we've got this baby grow for Gordon and the new baby. You know, you're supposed to have given it six weeks ago. The baby will be too big for it. And go. So we actually stopped off on the way. I mean, it was l- literally that kind of thing. But, yeah. of course, in long copy Sunday newspaper, uh, uh, you, you know, pieces, you need a location, you need a conspiracy, <laughs> you need all that kind of stuff. And it became... The, you know, the idea that I'd visited Gordon Brown to plan this conspiracy. And the, the truth is that wasn't the case. You, you know, actually, the, I'd, st- I'd agreed to sign the letter before I went to Scotland, and rather stupidly, naively, in, in a ridiculous way, should have probably known what the outcome would be, but, but didn't think about it at the time. So, so you'd written the letter... You, who did you agree with? I'd not written the letter, in fact. Uh, the, the letter... Uh, I, and... I know this sounds ridiculous because in Labour terms this is quite a historic moment mm. but for me I'd, I'd have actually forgotten a lot of the hours and days that uh, over that period I, I guess because it was so stressful, emotional and tumultuous for me personally, my family definitely and you know for the people around but so I've kind of recreated events using the mind of Chris Bryant MP, who, <laughs> who keeps a meticulous diary and has told me exactly what I did. I don't know whether it's true or not, but so, so the account I will give you is Chris Bryant's account of my behaviour in, um, in this uh, event. And he tells me that he phoned me and said, I've read this thing in the Times, it's absolutely terrible, I think we should do something. Uh, and the, the, he sent a draft of uh, a potential letter, which I said was completely you know far too harsh and then started sort of getting involved in the you know what it should look like and how what it should say and that was on the sort of friday uh i can't even remember the date but you know thursday friday and i'd agreed it then before before i journeyed to scotland so um i'm not apportioning blame but it's chris bryant's fault (laughs) 
It's just, uh, Demi McBride in his book actually sort of supports your uh, version of events. He says that all you and Gordon talked about was Thomas the Tank. Well, I've not read Damien's book, but people tell me, uh, in fact, what, what I'm told that Damien, I, I went to the launch of his book, I've not read it yet, my, my, my soon-to-be ex-father-in-law tells me that it's a book of redemption and that he, he sort of ad- admits terrible things he did, um, and that one of the things he says in it is that there was a Curry House coup, which is how the Murdoch press related it. That's actually not true, so I suspect Damien has rec- recreated that from his own mind from reading the papers as a press officer. Um, but, yeah, it is true. I mean, it, well, it genuinely, uh, the, the sort of visit to Gordon and Sarah's house wa- was a sort of, uh, you know, we literally dropped in to drop this present off for the new baby. And um, the kids were there. You, you know, my boy was um, was quite young then, and his, his, his kids were young, and they watched Tom and the... T- we didn't drop off a Thomas the Tank Engine... DVD, which some of the papers say they they were watching Thomas the Tank, uh, tank, tank Engine videos, you know, like, as kids do, and it's sort of we ended up in a slightly bizarre way watching it with them because that's what you do with your kids. So uh, the comic moment was not lost on me even then that I was sitting there with you know the Chancellor of the Exchequer watching Thomas the Tank Engine videos in Scotland with my children. You know, it d- doesn't happen all the time even when you're an MP. But um, we sort of tempted to just say. Gordon, I'm going I'm to resign. I just want to say you know. Um, do, do you know what? All the at that point, I was more thinking, you know, Malachi, what you're doing on the, you, you know, and and no, the last thing on my mind was, I, uh, uh, you know, I, it's hard to say this, but uh, you know, I wasn't, pr- I probably wasn't thinking as strategically as you should when you were a member of Parliament on these things because. I, there was a lot going on in my mind about the future of the Labour Party and where Tony was, and I, I, I didn't. I guess I didn't really want to involve Gordon in that conversation, you, you, yeah. you know, because I just I'd not worked it out in my own mind. It was, a, it wasn't a random act, but it was an emotional act. It wasn't sort of strategic in that sense. And you know, you know, when you're in politics, I, I think there's a lot. People always think that you're sort of a calculating machine. Very often, that's not the case in politics. It, it's. You know, your, your instincts take over, and you sort of uh, that that kind of kicks in. It's certainly something that people think about the you know the Gordon Brown camp or sort of his acolytes, and that it's sort of very meticulously planned, sort of Ed Balls and Ed Miliband, and to some extent yourself and and Demi McBride and the other yeah. people around him. That there was sort of years and years of planning leading up to this point, and that it was an expression of that. Yeah, I I, I mean, I think there's a lot of parody about the way the roles people play in politics and. And, um, you know, obviously Gordon became Prime Minister and I think people now would probably form the view that there wasn't meticulous planning before he became (laughs) Prime Minister. Uh, So, uh, and certainly on my part, you you know, I I mean, I had an unusual journey in politics in that I'd worked for both Tony and Gordon and Neil and John Smith. Mm. And uh, so, um, you know, I I genuinely sort of didn't... I, I genuinely didn't and don't see myself as that kind of part of that sort of uh, sect that uh, is portrayed in some of the newspapers around Gordon. But 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 um, and um, I probably I don't speak for the other people who were sort of always sort of written in those stories, but I, I suspect they've got a s- similar view as well. So to when Gordon took over and then it led towards the 2010 election. Um, 
Was, it, was there any ever a point during the campaign or even since? Where, because, you know, you talk to people now and they say, maybe with Blair we could have won that. You know, it wasn't... In terms of... The show of the vote was disastrous, but the show of the seats, actually, when they came, you think, well, maybe with the leader who was just better at communicating. Labour could have got over the line. Maybe, maybe you could have killed Cameron off. Do, do you think, perhaps, had you not resigned, that Labour might still be in government? Oh, dear. Oh, Lord, if you went into... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people quite often say that. You know, a lot of people say, it's, all, it's your fault. It's your fault you resigned. And um, I, I mean, if you tried to do those counterfactuals as a, an elected representative, you'd, you'd send yourself into the stratosphere. Um, but no, I don't. I, I mean, we, the biggest loss of support for the Labour Party was in the 2005 general election. Mm. Um, and y you know, uh, uh, other people who led the party should account for themselves on why that happened. But I think most people recognise after the Iraq War, things changed dramatically for Labour, and um, y you know we're still suffering the effect, the yeah. post-Iraq War decision. And um, you know, look, I was a defence minister in after that so I, I carry my responsibility for that but I think that was the big reason why Labour uh, ended up losing ultimately losing power but someone would say uh, and you know I'll be one of them that we still won in 2005 after Iraq with Blair and when you look at how close it was and frankly how average Cameron was during the election campaign someone with Blair Brown still in a leading role but not exposed as much as he was as leader yeah. could have actually could have actually got Labour over the line well, no one will ever really know that, Matt. You, you yeah. know, I mean, I, my my personal view is that we were ready to move on. You know, I've got to stand by the decision I took, but you, you know, you won't, you don't know that, and neither do I. So there's, there's actually there's little point in trying to sort of, uh, you know, do these kind of factual assessments. When you look at sort of when when Gordon took over, because I was working for the party at the time as an organizer, I remember MP saying. Um, the one thing we don't want is a contest, and that was very much the party line from the top was that we don't want a contest. Do you think, had we had, had Gordon allowed, and his people allowed there to be a contest, even if it was against someone like John McDonnell, and there could have been a sense that actually he's won some form of election, that maybe that would have helped him to some extent? Yeah, I do, actually. I, I, mean, I, I, I mean, what there should have been, really, is a contest between him and David Miliband. Mm. And, um, y you know, they're the... In the end, I think people, that phrase that I use myself was there should be a smooth and orderly transition. What people would interpret that as is we should pass on from Tony to Gordon. But actually, had he won in his own right, or had he lost in his own right uh, against people who were credible uh, candidates to lead the Labour Party... I think we'd probably have been united in that run up to 2010, and it was a sort of there was a sort of sense that um, you know the sort of uh, the wing of the party that was represented by David w had, n had not allowed to be represented in that um, in that selection process, and I think that probably did us a bit of harm. I, I don't overemphasise that because you know I think Gordon would have won anyway, and I think David probably weighed that up, but. Had he put himself forward for re-election in, um, in that contest, there would probably have been a more settled view in the party. What I found fascinating was, firstly, there wasn't a contest. And at the time, and as a member of staff, it sort of made some sort of sense. You know, to be fair, I think we all collectively at the time thought, well, maybe that's for the best. You know, we don't want a bloodletting. You don't want the sort of thing that Major had to go through. Though, of course, 
uh, he did win an election, so perhaps he was a better model to follow than we thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and particularly this week, where he's talking a, a, a fair bit of yeah. sense. Um, but what I was amazed by was that people who are close to Gordon Brown, you know, people who actually couldn't have known any better, to be quite frank, were telling us there's a plan. You know, the first hundred days, all this sort of business, it'd be amazing. Gordon will take over, he's going to blitz the Tories. And then he came in, it just felt there wasn't. And you just think, Ed Balls must have known, Ed Miliband must have known. Because they, they were the closest people to him, they must have been saying, Gordon, you've told us about this plan. Can we at least just have a peek at the title? Absolutely nothing. That was the thing that shocked me most as a member of staff was, I felt like we'd just been all been misled. Well, because I, I wasn't involved in that 100 days plan. I mean, at, at, the time, at the time, I was in the slammer. You know, I was, um, I was like the man that no MP would ever talk to. I, in fact, I, when I resigned under Tony, uh, I remember um, sort of leaving my rather luxurious office in the Ministry of Defence and um, people saying goodbye minister um, we will miss you setting off the alarms every morning with your mobile phone that uh, is restricted in this unit and going to the House of Commons and literally there being a cleaner removing the mop and bucket from the office that they'd allocated me which was the tiniest office in the House of Commons which was my punishment for doing what I did and, uh, and then you know, the whole of Gordon's team being too embarrassed to speak to me in public. And, you know, so I literally was in isolation, um, which um, I, I guess, y you know, was a sort of the way politics is. But, uh, you, you know, it does allow me not to answer your question about <laughs> why, why was there not a first 100 days plan? <laughs> I think most people, about, I think even the country sort of felt initially with Gordon Mabby, we thought this is a good contrast with Blair, he's, he's more serious and that was seen as a virtue. And then that sort of over time eroded. And you just think, in Blair's book he says towards the end that he realised, in effect, that Gordon was, wasn't suitable, prime ministerial material, and that he'd gone along with the idea that he would hand over to him for, for years and years and years and that even he who knew him best thought yeah. for a long time that he would, but he, he, so he sort of dawned on him too late. I mean, did you ever feel any unease? Did you think at any point, ah, he's not up to the job, like he's, maybe his time's just passed him by, but he, he, he lacks the fundamental <coughs> skills? I guess, um, it, it, to answer that honestly, I've not really formed a comprehensive view of that yet. I mean, I think the Labour Party, at the time he took over, you know, we were genuinely split. There was a, there was, there were, there was a sort of unsaid dissent over some quite serious issues to do with Labour Party's relationship with markets, with future direction the party should take. Y you know, um, you know, how do we foster a culture of entrepreneurialism? All, the, all those kind of big issues. And Gordon inherited a party that was sort of split, not just around future direction but also around some of the personalities and so I've not I've not allowed myself to work out could things have been different and better with him as a leader I mean he certainly took over and th this goes back to your earlier point about should there have been a, a contest he took over with people who were not prepared to accept his leadership and I, I always remember because I you know I'm officially old in the Labour Party now, I'm an old old veteran these days, um, even at the age of 46, where a great quote from Neil Kennett where he says, to lead the Labour Party, first of all you need to establish whether the party wishes to be led. <laughs> and I'm not sure whether Gordon Brown could have answered that question with the answer yes or no. And, and so he was probably stymied from the 
from the start. And you know, history will decide whether you know he took over the leadership of the party, and he was starving because of his own conduct and the team around him. I think I think that needs that's yet to be worked out. There are a lot of biographies from the Blair team that have been published and serialised. The Brown team haven't really written theirs up yet. So, and I always think when you sort of consider these decisions in the round, you need a little bit of time and uh, <coughs> to, to to work out the sort of true story. But um, you know, he didn't he didn't inherit a Labour Party that really wanted to win like Tony did in in the mid nineties. Do you think Ed Miliband did? Oh yeah, the, well the strange thing, I didn't know that actually when he won, I, I wasn't sure where we would go um, and one of the great qualities about Ed as a leader I think probably out of all the, all the people that stood for the party is he has managed to hold quite a fractious alliance together and, and what I mean by that is you know after that election um, uh, there were some sort of quite powerful personalities who th who had ideas about who should win um, and none of them really thought it should be him and um, he's managed to hold the team in, in uh, together and do some quite sort of decisive and counterintuitive um, policy announcements so um, uh, uh, I'm you know quietly very proud of the things that he's done and you know, it w admire him for the way he's managed to p hold it all together, really. Do you think he'd be a good Prime Minister? Yes, I do. I mean, I, I, I g genuinely do. I, I look at him, and uh, I, I mean, I, he was a young leader who wasn't supposed to win. There were a lot of question marks over his leadership. He uh, has done a lot of learning on the job. But I look at him compared... I, I was in PMQs today. I don't go to Prime Minister's Question Time every week uh, these days I d does my head in to be honest but he he, I just thought the position he took today he was a Prime Minister in waiting and David Cameron looked old and tired and um, you wouldn't have said that a year ago so uh, y yes I think he will be a good Prime Minister I mean I wouldn't say it now but I think he um, <laughs> I think he I, I watched it today and he got a question in um, but I think with Miliband is that even when he's getting even when he's getting the better of Cameron, there's just something about him that doesn't communicate authority. There's something that he still looks startled. They used to say that, well, he's got big eyes. That doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, but but they, they, they used to say that about David Cameron. I mean, the one thing I know, having been a minister, an unexpected defence minister, unexpected whip, unexpected um, cabinet office minister, is, um, you know... The office maketh the man or woman. Mm. You you do kind of look the part because you you are part of the team, and it's very hard when you're in opposition to get through the white noise of government. And 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 he's had a very he's had a particular problem in that we've got this coalition government where we've got a prime minister and a deputy prime minister who make the news, and therefore you know he's kind of third on the news list for these guys. Um, so it's harder, um, and. You know, there's always a balance in opposition between political tactics and opportunism, in, if I can use that phrase, and your strategic goals mm. for where you want to take the country and the party. And, you know, he's had to take a balance on that. And, it, it, you know, if I'm being honest, he's, he's because he's so bright and clever and he's such a thinker, He's been very good on the strategic stuff, but learning to be in opposition was a little bit of a chore for us. And we got all these 
guys who were innately cautious because they came out of government and were elected while we were in government, um, you know, for them to sort of act as, a, as an opposition and sort of seize issues and make it theirs was quite difficult for us in the early years, I think. So what is, what is Ed Miliband's strategic vision? Um, well, you must, when you get Ed Miliband here, you must ask him. <laughs> I mean, what, what I want him to do, I mean, he, you know, you've got me here, so I'm going to tell you what I want him to do. I mean, I genuinely believe that governments are at their best when they can paint a picture of a long-term sort of vision for the country. And, and Labour governments are at best when they talk about renewed national purpose. Mm. And, you know, I think of Wilson with the white heat of change, or Tony, when he sort of redefined, redefined what the Labour Party was, which was we accept mixed markets and you can have social justice and economic growth, economic success. And for me, um, you know, a future Labour government, having come out of this probably the worst sort of depression we've had mm. since the 20s, you know, what kind of a country do I want to be? David Cameron talks about that national... You know, we're in a global race. I think that's a really good starting point. What kind of, but my argument is, what kind of team do we want this country to be? What, you know, how do we get to be, you know, you know a team that everyone looks up to? And, and for me, it's quite s simple. You know, we need to be a fairer, kinder, but more entrepreneurial country. And what? What the hell was that? What the hell was that? Was that someone sneezing or... What, what was it you said? Okay. Does that make any sense to you? No. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, so you are capable of speech. It's a miracle. Um, what, me or him? I don't, understand, I don't understand what or who you're really angry with at the moment. What, are you calling Tom a champagne socialist? Okay. Right, I... I, I are you okay, mate? <laughs> Absolutely fine. Yeah, right, okay. Well, just, I mean, you can ask a question later if you like, but. No, no, no I'm just dozing off. Don't mind me. It's fine. Right, well, I wouldn't want to share a bed with you, mate. You sound like a lunatic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Christ. Apologies for that. I was just. I mean no, no, I, I didn't. I can't see you. Uh, so, uh, obviously, like, you're some dark troll from the back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can see you. Okay. Oh, oh, great. Thank you for enlivening the audience. <laughs> I mean, have, you, have you got a question? Have you, have or you actually, well, how much does it cost to, to, to... You paid to come and abuse me tonight, in that way. And to sleep, by the sounds of things. What were you expecting? Well, it wasn't advertised as a disco. <laughs> Oh, went some political debate the other night. There were no nibbles and the strippers never turned up. <laughs> <laughs> the whole point is that... I beg your pardon? The first oh, half yeah. was comedy. This is it's called po politics and comedy. And this is the, this is the first word. <laughs> <laughs> what is interesting and what is entertaining, the reason why everyone else has been able to listen, is listening to people's ideas and people there when big things happened is fascinating because the vast majority of us in this room will never witness these things. You've got the opportunity here to ask a man who was present at some of the major moments in recent political history, a proper question, 
or you can shout like a drunken oaf from the back. And unfortunately for you, you've chosen the latter. You made a fool out of it. You're not my flatmate, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, right, so where were we? Ed's, Ed's, I mean, you know... Uh, so <laughs> So we're talking about Ed Lewis. He sounded a little bit like him. I wasn't sure what to start with. I I don't want to encourage him, but we we were talking about what sort of bloke, you know, what sort of leader Ed Miliband is, and and that bloke nodded off. So let's. um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. Let, let's, let's move on. Obviously, one of the things that you're really arguably most famous for is the, the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, where not only did you have Coulson and Brooks, but the big one, where I had a house party um, <laughs> that afternoon, um, where we had mates around and we had drinks and yeah. um, nibbles. You should have come to that, mate. Uh, <laughs> and, um, we, had, uh, we watched it, and it was the most remarkable political drama, because I think m- most people who saw it, or who saw it afterwards, never thought that Murdoch would actually turn up. I mean, did you... Did you expect him to turn up, or was there even to the last a sort of sense that maybe he, he wouldn't appear? No, I thought he'd turn up. And, um, I, I mean, it's hard to describe it, really, because I, I was so focused on it that, um, you know, the momentous sort of event that it was it was sort of lost on me. I, I knew it was a big occasion. I knew there'd be sort of live TV and people would be interested, but... I'd, I, I, that the week before, I'd, I'd done so much preparation. I was totally focused on my sort of question plan and all that kind of stuff. That there was a lot of sort of media fluff around it, but I, it was t- I'd, I'd blocked it all out. So, um, you know, strangely, you know, I was very nervous I was before I came on stage tonight. But when when Murdoch was there, and I know it was broadcast over three continents, I was not nervous at all. I was incredibly calm because I was incredibly well prepared unlike tonight <laughs> sorry I'm so uh, uh, as my flatmate has attested to so um, the, uh, the, 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 you, you know he just walked it you know I just did the thing and um, it was afterwards that it, that it all kind of just hit me uh, but bef- before he attended and no I just thought I thought they'd turn up because they were forced to turn up I thought they they didn't want to be there. They were very unreasonable and quite jagged about it and wanted to dictate the terms and do a statement and all that kind of bullying stuff that powerful people who have never been challenged for a long, a long time do. But no, I knew they'd be there. Did anything about his demeanour or the fact that he looked so old throw you? Did you at any point think because I thought he was quite savvy and that he, you know, he obviously is old but did part of you think you be very careful how you play this to make him not look like a victim? No, I, I, I didn't um, I didn't know, I've never spoken to the guy so I didn't know how he'd behave um, although they sort of uh, I thought their their uh, their kind of strategy, so I've interviewed their people before and knew how they behave they try and get their headline I mean, the first time I was on the committee, they, the, their lawyer and the editor of the News of the World uh, did the first committee. They tried to remove me from the committee because I was suing the Sun for libel, and I, di- I couldn't quite work it out. I thought it was just—I thought it was just beyond belief that they would be so just rude and inappropriate. Uh, but of course, there I was in the committee, and that was running as a breaking news story on Sky News before anyone could even report the question we'd ask them. So I thought they'd come in with a big kind of, um, you know, headline story that would lead the news for the three hours of the of the session. And 
the committee members had been quite stung by the behaviour of their executives before, so they, they, they were very angry that they were not allowed to do an opening statement. And I, I think at the start, that Murdoch had wanted to say, this is the most humble day of my life <laughs> uh, at the start, and wasn't allowed to, and he, he managed to get it in in his questions. And I also thought that him being the head of the company, he was responsible for setting the corporate culture of the company, they would try and protect him. And so he'd obviously sacrifice his son for his, uh, you, you know, in the way that you do in these sort of uh, families. So I, I kind of, obviously in my head, I thought, well, I'll try and make it about him. And he kept trying to pass the answers to his son. So in, I'd got a kind of idea that I would not let him do that. Uh, but it, it, it wasn't conscious. It was, you know, it wasn't sort of really prepared. It's only afterwards people's, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I think on three or four occasions he tried to sort of, pass questions over to his son and not let him but I, yeah. I didn't, at the time I wasn't really aware that that was what was going on I was just focused on trying to get answers out of him. It was a great piece of theatre, those bits where he said I'll come to you in a minute. Yeah, I did, that was all, the, you know, I just I, well, they, he was like, you know he, was, he kept jumping in, he was like a sort of you know, like a sort of eager schoolboy really you know, and I said, well no I don't want to talk to you I'll, I'll, do, I'll do your dad but um, I, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't planned that it was just the way it, the way it happened Did you practice it at all? Did you sort of sit at your desk and sort of get your mates to sit around in a horseshoe and sort of <laughs> or anything like that did you practice it at all? Because it's important isn't it on these days to, to, that you don't trip over your words and that you get things done properly I, I didn't practice it but I was prepared I mean I, I, I put I mean, I, more than any committee session I'd done or I, I mean I'd Remember, I'd been on this inquiry for quite a while. I'd done self-investigation. I'd talked to a lot of whistleblowers. I'd talked to people in the company, lawyers, victims. So I knew the subject. And then I thought about... And, and, and within the committee, of course, you, you know, you've got others who want to ask questions. I'd got... Uh, I mean, you know, not, not decrying the chairman, but uh, he was a you know, former advisor to Mrs Thatcher who did, believed in a sort of you know, lib libertarian free press, so he, he wasn't particularly enamoured with having them in front of us. So, so I'd thought about how can I try and make sure that my question plan was, was unique and others wouldn't try and sort of get in there. And so I, I, I'd worked out that if I asked the questions around the theme of corporate culture, mm. it would allow me to ask Rupert Murdoch senior, you know, as a senior member of the co company about corporate culture rather than going into detail. <laughs> was the split on the committee? Obviously, committees are cross party. It, it was Whittingdale, wasn't it, that was chairman? John Whittingdale. John yeah. Whittingdale, who's uh, not a man whose face is made for HD. Right, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> terrifying at times on that committee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was interesting. Was, was, was the sort of splits on the committee wholly along party lines? Were Labour people on the committee sort of gunning for Murdoch maybe a little bit more? Because Louise Mensch was on the committee as well, wasn't she, at that time? Yeah. Uh, what sort of view... Did you, did you chat to people beforehand, uh, fellow members? Oh, we'd had a lot of... I mean, uh, and, and actually before the election, before... Um, the, the, you know, there was a different committee when we did the original inquiry. So there were um, different views from many members. I mean... The, in the original inquiry, which published a report in February 2010, before the general election in 2010, where we said that we, we thought that uh, it was inconceivable that others were not involved in phone hacking yeah. and that there was a sort of uh, collective amnesia amongst the executives of the company, which I thought in parliamentary terms was you know, pretty dramatic and mm. damning statements that were hardly reported other than headlines that said Andy Coulson cleared by parliamentary inquiry um, 
I won't say any more than that, the trials start next Tuesday. Uh, so um, it, was a, it was a big moment. And on that, at that point, um, a, a number of MPs from, there was an MP from the, from the Welsh Nationalists, from the Lib Dems, and even some of the Tory MPs felt that uh, that was a fair reflection of the inquiry we'd done in 2010. It hardened up after that. And the committee, uh, you, you know, I've been sort of criticised for sort of polarising the committee in the second report we did yeah. where we, we, we moved an amendment that um, sort of criticised Rupert Murdoch as the head of the company for creating the corporate culture. It, it received cross-party support, but all of the Conservative MPs on the committee opposed it. And, and we, we then did sort of um, probably split on party lines. Um, more than you would want to in a normal mm. committee, but I just, you know, at that point, I just thought, well, if we do, you know, there is so much expectation that we do the right thing with this report. If we l lower the bar to try and get a consensus, then we will have removed ourselves from the obligation of passing judgment, and we'd done a lot. Of, we'd put in a lot of effort and time into it, and it didn't seem right. You had some remarkable characters in front of you. Didn't you? You're not just uh, Rupert and James Murdoch, obviously Andy Coulson. Um, and, and Rebecca Brooks, and Rebecca Brooks is a fascinating woman because oh, I always had a bit of a crush on her um, <laughs> when she was Rebecca Wade. So it, I was sort of torn watching it because part of me, and I think in an odd way, I think she did sort of, did, is it fair to say she sort of beguiled the committee a little bit and maybe some of the politicians around her, you know, Tony Blair was very close to her, David Cameron was texting her God knows how many times a day, you know. The, people, it, there's a perception that actually over all of them, she had a bit more about her. Was she sort of, did she try and flirt with you at all? She's never tried to flirt with me. <laughs> um, and actually, after that, se there were two sessions. You know, we had the sort of Murdochs before. And before the session, we'd had advice from Speaker's Council, who's this sort of rather formal figure. And he had reported back that uh, she'd been arrested and there were therefore sort of issues that made... There were issues that where we had to be uh, very careful about our question plan because she may have been charged. She's obviously subsequently been charged. She's facing mm. trial next week. And also uh, reported that she was incredibly uh, traumatised by the, uh, her, pre her recent arrest mm. and that we should, her lawyers had asked us to be aware that she was in a delicate uh, emotional state. <laughs> and... Um, Actually, Matt, I've never said this publicly before, but with, within the within the, I'm not, I'm actually not really supposed to report back about private deliberations. But given that, give, given those facts that were given to the committee, I thought it was inappropriate to actually interview her. I thought we shouldn't have interviewed her. A, the committee would not have been able to go where they wanted to go. But B, given what we'd been told, it seemed unfair on her, mm. um, on a, just a very human level, to put her through that. So. So I didn't really bother asking her that many tough questions. And uh, so she walked out of the committee and wasn't really the story. And, I, 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 you know, I, I think some people would wonder why she didn't get the sort of penetrating questions that the other that the Murdochs did. And, and it's really, I just think, we'd been told that she was incredibly traumatised and facing 
potential charges and it did and we had to be careful what we said so there were questions I would have asked that I didn't because of that advice. How important is it in terms of the relationship obviously politicians relationship with the press and really from New Labour onwards with Murdoch uh, obviously there was, a, there was a sort of political sense that with Blair neutralising the Sun and the Times this was you know, a coup really it was a political tactic as part of a wider strategy and this was a good thing yeah. and then that relationship got closer and closer and politicians since have, have continued to get close to yeah. these people, to the point where you know, Blair is a godfather to one of Murdoch's kids, where yeah. Cameron secret is godfather. secret godfather yeah. uh, to one of their kids, um, where uh, Cameron and Coulson, uh, Cameron and Brooks, sorry, are sort of riding horses together and stuff yeah. like this. I mean, it's, it's far too cosy, isn't it? What is it about? Is, is it just simply that those people hold the power and politicians want to be close to them, or is there something about these people as individuals that makes them attractive to politicians? I think it's. I think it's about attraction. It's the, it's the power. I think it, their relationship was pathetic and fawning and inappropriate. And uh, I people have asked me about this. They say, well, you, you know, do, should Tony Blair take responsibility or Gordon Brown take responsibility? I think all prime ministers, from Margaret Thatcher, shoulder some responsibility for allowing Rupert Murdoch and his company to become just too powerful. And it started in 1981 with. Um, Mrs. Thatcher allowing the rules to be a little bit bent where um, Rupert Murdoch as owner of the News of the World and the Sun was allowed to buy the Times and the Sunday mm. Times and it never went to the cabinet. Uh, the, the media ownership rules at the time uh, should have meant that it did and, and actually the counterfactual is we, we, we now know that there was a secret meeting between Margaret Thatcher and Rupert Murdoch at Chequers that, that was denied um, and had that meeting taken place recently, in recent times, we would have known that 12 months after, not 30 years after, mm. because we've got a Freedom of Information Act that would have revealed tho these embarrassing meetings that has caused David Cameron some embarrassment um, since he was a, uh, elected to office. And so um, by the time Tony and Gordon were in office, um, Tony said this at Leveson, he had a choice you know, do I sort of take this sort of media tiger on, this hungry media tiger on, or do I try and get my programme enacted? And he was very candid and said, I, look, I chose not to take them on because I wanted to... I, I've only got so much time as Prime Minister, I wanted to get my programme enacted. I can understand that logic. I, I personally think it was a mistake. I think he should have taken them on. And I hope that the three party leaders in their manifestos um, address the issue of media ownership and not just media regulation uh, at the general election in 2015. You've had a, a, obviously a, a sort of severe relationship with News International where as well as cross-examining them, you, as you say, you, you sued them for libel and uh, at one point they, they hired a pri private detective to, to follow you back. I mean, did you ever, did you ever see him? <laughs> I, um, well, there, I, I was such a paranoid wreck at that time. I saw people following me all the time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was like... I mean, it wasn't just one private detective. It, 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 uh, I mean, I, I now, I mean, the, the, I now know I was definitely followed because I had an apology of James Murdoch at the committee. But <coughs> this guy was a guy called Derek Webb, and he he he, he was revealed on uh, Channel Four News. Michael Crick, for some reason, managed to reveal him as the guy they did. He was like the guy who followed people, and um, I sort of rang him up. I thought, well, I'll get, you know, I just take my chances, I rang him up and said, you know... Is there a phone ringing in the wardrobe? <laughs> yeah, it was like that. I sort of said, um, you know, oh, hello, is that Derek? Um, 
my name is Tom Watson, I think you used to follow me. <laughs> On Twitter? Yeah, and he said, oh yeah, I, I remember you, and uh, yeah, yeah, Labour Party conference, 2009, you know, and anyway, it turned out that he was, um, he was very upset with the company, because when they closed News of the World, they, he says they didn't honour his contract, so... I said, well, I might be able to help you a bit with that, Derek. You, you know, well, <laughs> why don't you join a trade union? Uh, <laughs> they, they got um, the finest employment lawyers in the land and he started to sue them for breach of contract. And, and in return, he gave me the schedule of everyone he'd ever followed for 11 years of working for News International, which, <laughs> which uh, I gave to the police and my lawyers and some of the people he followed. Uh, there are an amazing number of people on that list. Um, and but but it, but it, you know I joke about it, but yeah. I mean it was him. But they all within within that there was also someone called Gareth who was the, an audio visual specialist, and they I then managed to interview Neville Thilbeck, who was a former chief reporter of News of the World, who said that um, the management broke down the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee and were told he said the orders came down from on high find out who's having an affair, find out who's secretly game. we want to know all the dirt on these people. And they had one or two MPs on the committee each to follow, and the guy who was tasked to me was Mazza Mahmood, the guy that, you know, he's sort of known as the fake shake. Fake shake yeah. So he put this team in, and, um, you know, I, God knows what information they got. I've not had all of that. but um, So it was Derek, the former Met police officer, trained in covert surveillance, and Gareth, the audio-visual specialist, and... Some guy on a motorbike whose name I forget, you know. So he's, uh, I mean, he's sort of. I laugh about it now, but at the time, it you know, it was a very dark period. But at the time, did you? Hit, I mean, what's it like being under that sort of scrutiny? Did you hear like rustling in the bushes? Yeah. Did, that sort oh, of yeah. stuff. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was near the edge of madness, and um, you, you know, and I, again, I laugh about it now. But sort of 2009, 10, you, you know, I'd go to work um, and say to colleagues. There's guys uh, in the car outside the flat again. I think I might be followed. And, of course, they would say, who the hell do you think you are? You're a madman. Nobody knows who you are. Why would they follow you? And, of course, they were following me. And, uh, God. So, so uh, you, you know, it, it's, it, it sounds insane to describe this world. Um, because when you join the Labour Party, particularly me in, at the age of 15, when basically you're a Fred Perry, Fred Perry wearing specials fan who... Mm doesn't anticipate being a member of parliament, let alone, you know, a minister. Um, you know, I just look back and think, when I joined the Labour Party to change the world, did I think that Rupert Murdoch would hire former Met police officers to follow me around London and, you know, the fake shake would put a team on me? No, obviously not. And, and even now I think, I think, well, God, that's just mad, isn't it? But that's what it was like. And, uh, I, you know, I, and... It still freaks me out thinking about it, but you know, hopefully they'll be a bit more cautious next time. Do you think they're still following you? Do you think they still keep an eye on you at all? Well, I mean, there's a prime suspect at the back. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a fellback, are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, uh, there was a time uh, last year where I thought I might have been followed again, and I, I, but I don't know, and. I know. I mean, people. I mean, people in the audience will think I sound mad, but even now, when I leave the house, 
you know, if there's a car I don't recognise in the street, I, I still sort of try and memorise the number plate because it, 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 it sounds insane. But Who's spying on who, Tom? I know, Come on, mate. I know it sounds mad, but I mean, you, you kind of, it, it just takes over your life, you know, it becomes, um, you know, you just worry all the time about, um, about that kind of thing. So, am I, do I believe that one day Rupert Murdoch's people will try and, you know, even the score? Yes, I do. I mean, you know, I'd, and it would be naive of me as a politician in public life to think if ever I make a mistake or do something wrong, which everyone does in life, it will be, you know, multiplied by a factor of 10 or whatever. I, yes, I think that will happen. Has uh, it, as a result of sort of having that overview, has it changed your behaviour? <laughs> yeah, I'm probably a bit more cautious about, um, <laughs> y you know, um, I probably, it's probably, yes, it's probably helped me, you know, I don't get, I don't drink as much as I did or, uh, you know, I sort of, uh, I'm a little bit cautious about what I say publicly a bit more, uh, I, you know, but I mean, on the flip side, having been through it and exposed it, I feel that you know, they can't hurt me as much as they did. Mm. And, you know, and they did hurt me. They hurt my family and the people I love. Um, and I don't think they can do what... They can't create the fear. They hurt me with fear, fear of the unknown, and they can't mm. do that anymore. So they, in terms of hurting your family, obviously, it, as it's known, it sort of cost you your marriage, really, the, the sort of pressure of the whole thing. Um, that must have been an awful thing to go through. D were they, do you think, contacting your wife or contacting your... Relatives? Um, well, they were frightening my family. I know that. They were they were like knocking on my door. You know, people. I mean, the moment there were a number of moments in this, but the, there was a moment where my my young son there was a knock on the door. My young son hid behind the sofa and said, "Daddy, there's another nasty man at the door." And uh, I, I, I mean, that was a, actually a turning point. I, I just sat there felt totally inadequate uh, I felt I can't I'm in my home I can't protect my family there is n even in my living room there is no privacy I, I you know we are completely owned by these people how can they get away and I, it was an innocuous um, you know I, it was just a knock at the door but it was that moment and um, it just did irreparable harm to my family, and in a way that the guy who knocked at the door wouldn't possibly understand, but it also turned a switch in my head, and I, you know, at that point, you know, at that point, it wasn't an immediate journey, but at that point, I thought, I I'm sick of politics, I'm sick of the media, mm. I'm sick of Parliament, I'm not putting up with this anymore. I thought I was going to leave Parliament uh, in the 2010 election, but I was certainly determined to fight back. And, um, you know, I don't know whether that was the right thing or not, but yeah, that's what I did. And that was a point. So, um, and there are, you know, I, I, can't, I can't turn the clock back, but that's just what happened. I suppose in a way, though, that you've paid a huge personal cost for this you know, for this position that you've been put in, for ending up on that committee. You know, when you think about all the things that could have been different, had you gone on a different committee, you got elected at a different time in a different seat, all the things that sort of led you to this collision course with the Murdochs, 
and you wonder about how many other MPs perhaps wouldn't have gone as far as you have. And you think, well, overall, you've probably done a, it's been a great personal cost to you, but overall, there's been a net benefit of you going through that. I mean, do you appreciate that at all? I have very mixed feelings about all of it, really. Um, and, um, you know, you, I guess I suspend thought on this a lot. I don't, I, don't, I don't like to think about it a lot because I have quite dark thoughts even now. I, y you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be in the position I am today, talking to you about Rupert Murdoch and my family breakdown and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Um, and... There was some MP, you know, I did a speech in Parliament, one of the early speeches I did where I s started to surface it. I, I did a speech where I said, look, you know, isn't it ridiculous? We're all scared. We're frightened of these people. You know, we're in Parliament. We're MPs. We're supposed to be defending people, you, you, you know. And, and one, one, one it, it immediately got cross-party. Afterwards, lots of MPs came and said, I'm so glad you said that. I've been feeling this for years. I feel totally isolated. I, I thought I was the only one that lost sleep at night. I feel really frightened. And, and one guy came up, you know, I remember, and said, oh, I really admire what you said, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I said, well, you know, will you help me? We you speak out? He said, no, I'm far too frightened. It's too <laughs> dangerous, you know. And so I, I you know, now I, <laughs> I was the, the mix of sympathy for the fear, because I'd been there, um, I, 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 and still... Am on occasion, but less so. But also complete contempt that there you were in Parliament with a platform and you know not doing the right thing because of fear. And and I still feel that. And I, I feel you, you know I get a mix. I feel sort of angry sometimes. You know there were people in positions of power that could have changed this. Didn't ta yeah. you shouldn't have. You know I think you know, at the time as a backbencher, why should it have been a flipping select committee? Why didn't the powerful people who, you, you know, but then that's the political culture we're in. So, uh, you, you know, then I flip back to being stoic and, you know, just trying to sort of get on with life. So you fought, you fought the 2010 election and then after that sort of returned t towards the front line as general election coordinator for Ed Miliband. Um, and then we have this selection issue in Falkirk where yeah. <laughs> Ed Miliband yeah. himself sort of seems to suggest that rules were being broken or bent, that there had to be uh, an investigation that called the police in the Labour Party did. You yeah. resigned as general election coordinator because of your proximity to what was going on and to Karee Murphy and yeah. to Len McCluskey and all that. And then it turns out, oh, nothing, nothing happened at all and the whole thing was just a, a, a massive misunderstanding. Yeah. It's amazing how <laughs> even my own leader can be so wrong. But, uh, he was. And... Um, I mean, going back to going back to the. Fr I mean, the, it's un I've had an unusual journey in politics. I, I admit that, and uh, you know, having resigned from the front bench on three occasions, um, the second occasion because I just had enough of this sort of Murdoch stuff, and the third mm. occasion because for a combination of factors, the culmination being this Falkirk issue. Um, uh, y you know, that was one thing. Uh, but in Falkirk, I mean, y you know, it, it's hard for me to say this because I love him dearly, but Ed just got it wrong on Falkirk. And, um, y you know, he, he was given information or he was given a report that was inaccurate mm. and omitted, you know, some key facts and took judgments that very, you know, harmed the individuals involved in a, in a grotesque way. 
and you know I suspect privately he's a little bit embarrassed about it but he's the leader of the Labour Party and he's got to get on and lead the country and uh, I don't want to dwell on it yeah. uh, you know but that's where it's at. So at the time when you resigned I mean were you sort of saying to him privately I don't think anything's gone on here? No uh, the, uh, <laughs> I mean ironically um, having been in the eye of previous media storms what I was doing was a combination of trying to do the right thing by not engaging in the issue because I'd got a staff member that was involved in this parliamentary so the audience might not know the whole details but it was to do with a, parliament, a ridiculously a parliamentary selection in Falkirk in Scotland and um, and I was on the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party that was overseeing these things I was trying to keep out of the intricacies of this sort of process um, and uh, so I, I didn't quite know what was going on myself uh, when I was there um, so I, you know but I was fairly clear that you know there were like there's always dramatic personalities involved in these things there's always issues and stuff but I, I didn't know the detail it was only when I resigned in you know I'd been to Glastonbury with an old mate of mine. I probably had a, I'd probably having a midlife crisis. You know, I saw <laughs> loads of bands and thought, oh god, you know, this is like, I'm not getting like this Labour Party stuff is doing my head in. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, so I sort of resigned in sort of good humour, but in sort of, uh, you know, wanting Ed to be Prime Minister, but not wanting to faff around for 20 hours a week running yeah. elections. Um, but then. Bizarrely to me, like some days after my resignation, he decided to repo report my office manager to the police for <laughs> potential fraud. And I, then I'm thinking, are you, are you f I nearly swore there, uh, Matt. So <laughs> then are you joking? You know, this is like my office manager. Like she's running for a parliamentary selection. She's not robbing a bank. So, so then I thought, well, I'm now duty-bound. I have a duty of care to sort of look into this. And, you know, people that know me know that if I do actually sort of drill down in an issue, I try and get to the very, metic you know, meticulously get to the detail, and I spent a couple of weeks really drilling down into the detail, and having drilled down into the detail, I realised that the allegations against my staff member and another member of the party were total bullshit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but my, the leader of the Labour Party had reported to the police, and, uh, you know, her reputation had been completely destroyed. And uh, I had a duty of care, so I spoke out in the most delicate way I could. Well, you know, uh, and, um, you know, submitted what I thought was the issue, and, you know, all the charges were then dropped, and, um, you know, everyone had a sort of slightly embarrassed cough and a <laughs> shuffle, and we're all trying to move on. And uh, I don't want to dwell on it, Matt, because I want Ed to be Prime Minister and Labour to win the election. But, yeah. I mean, the truth is, I think an injustice was done to those people. And that sometimes happens in politics, you know. You you know, and you've got to, you, you know, there's a, you you you've got to sort of do the right thing by people, I think. But also, you know, you've got there's big issues at stake as well, aren't there? Has he? I mean, have you spoken to him since? Has he has he apologised and said, "Look, I'm really sorry." About this. No, um, but we have. I have spoken to him a lot. I mean, I've, uh, we we've had quite a few conversations about the sort of uh, Leveson stuff, and um, I I. Uh, expressed my concern for the way he was treated in the Daily Mail over the, mm. the treatment of his father. So, I, you know, having been there a little bit, I thought he needed a bit of solidarity because, um, you know, politics is a bit bereft of that. And so, you, you know, we've talked about those kind of things. But 
I, I mean, in all honesty, I, I think it w I'd just be deeply embarrassed to revisit the Falkirk issue again yeah. with him because what can I say? Look, you got it wrong. And, uh, you know, there's, no, there's actually no utility in it. It would just yeah. be, like, counterproductive. So uh, if I'm being honest, uh, in this private audience, you know, we've just sort of uh, decided to move on and not really talk about it anymore. Do you think what exacerbated it and what made it such a big issue was the fact that it was to do with Labour's relationship with the unions? And this is a sort of this is something that has dogged Labour leaders, certainly in my lifetime and throughout history, is how do you define the relationship between Labour and the unions? How do you pay respect to that past, to that sort of birth out of the union movement, but counter that with the reality of the Labour Party and to live in a modern Britain where frankly that relationship with the unions to most people is a total anathema? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I just saw you list there. Like you, you've got the word slag, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and hung I, I, over there, but uh, uh, sorry, it, uh, I, yeah, it's slightly, uh, yes. No I mean, one else can see that. It's, it, no, it's, it doesn't it's just like, say that word. No, <laughs> no. Anyway, uh, I keep uh, a little. I keep an aid memoir for certain <laughs> bits of material. Yeah, and that's Act One, obviously. One of them. Um, one of them. One of them is the word slag. Yeah, yeah. No, the, I mean, the, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's, that's just to remind me how far I've come. Um, yeah. <laughs> down um, um yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, me, me too actually but um <laughs> yes i mean i mean it became what became what was a row about a selection that happens all the time in the labor party became like this sort of nuclear explosion of sort of you know the future of the movement and um i, I don't think any of us quite understand how it happened um but it sometimes does do you think the, Labour, the unions do have too much influence over selections and over policy? Um, well, let me, let me answer this by saying I think unions have less influence in the Labour Party than they have ever had. And there is a genuine discussion about the role they play in the democracy of the party uh, and how trade unionists can participate in our internal democracy. I guess I come from quite a traditional school in that I don't think that the working people really get a look in a lot in politics these days. I don't think, I, I mean, I just think they, you read about the lives of people outside SW1 and they're moderated through journalists, many of whom have been to sort of fee-paying school, even the left-leaning journalists and the Guardian and the sort of independent, I'm not decrying them, but I just think their lives are not really portrayed in national media and I don't think their lives are properly understood in democracy, in, a, in the centre of our democracy in Parliament. And within the Labour Party, we're probably the only party that can reflect their lives properly. And one of the traditional routes for doing that has been mm. the trade unions, and they play a very historic role. And so, you know, you can have loads of rows about how you organise yourselves internally. But ultimately, I think the real danger is we lose the voice of working people. But the, I think for the, for the public's point of view, sometimes I think they understand that and they understand that Labour, even though things have changed since New Labour and all the rest of it, it still probably has more uh, a grassroots level of a relationship with working people than the other parties. But maybe what people don't necessarily think is that people like, say, Len McCluskey are an adequate reflection of, of working Britain and that distinction between union bosses and uh, union members and the relationship between union bosses and Labour Party policy, it's seen, and it's certainly played in the media and the public perception, that Labour leaders are sort of bossed about a bit. 
Yeah, I think it would be, I mean, it's fair for you to draw that distinction between union bosses and the members, um, like it is to draw the distinction between Labour leaders and their, me and their members. Um, but, y y you know, I mean, D David Cameron did this speech. I, I mean, I think about how these messages are portrayed. I mean, this, I'm sorry, this goes back to the sort of political media nexus that I spend a lot of time thinking about now. In fact, I spend a lot of time thinking about the stories that aren't reported in the press these days rather than the ones that are. And there was a, like, David Cameron did this speech at conference where he praised Jaguar Land Rover, a great manufacturing or automotive manufacturing company from my region in the West Midlands, and rightly praised them. And, you know, it was reported, oh, yeah, JLR, a great success story. But actually, the reason it's a great success story, in 2008, this company nearly went under because of the crash. And the unions representing the workers organised shorter working hours and a pay freeze for the workers there who stood by the company and got it through what was a, a, a time of peril, which allowed them to become the great success story they are five years later. And you know, people don't know that story because it wasn't reported. And I, I don't think people in the Labour Party probably rewarded and cherished and revered the work that went on from those trade unions to try and do that. That happens a hundred times a day all over workplaces in this country. But it's only the dissent that gets reported. So, y you know, I, I'm, I'm probably, uh, you know, maybe I'm a bit of a dinosaur. When the, you, you know, you, whenever you sort of say, I support the trade union voice in the Labour Party and you do these things, you know, you get sort of easily sort of portrayed as being old-fashioned. But I just think they, I just think they rebalance the debate about what kind of country we want to live in. And, you know, I said earlier we want a, you know, a kind of fairer country. I think trade unions play an important role in that. And, yes, the rhetoric sometimes gets ratcheted up, but most of the time trade unions play an important role in, you know, making the country a fairer, more civilised place. OK, well, I'll take some questions from the audience. So if we can just have the house lights up. I'll ask you to keep uh, the questions to one sentence and one sen uh, sentence answers as well, and we'll... So try and take four or five. Uh, the gentleman down there is very keen. What's your name, mate? Barry. Barry. I'll um, I'll repeat your question for the benefit of the podcast. So if you say it, and then I'll repeat it. So this is yeah. the, the issue of charges, the new IPSA rules, uh, effectively, for MPs and MPs' expenses. I, I don't actually... Um, to be honest, Barry, I, I, I guess I'm so traumatised by the expenses scandal of, sort of uh, 2008, I don't actually spend a lot of time knowing what's on offer. I keep reading the papers with you an 11% pay rise. And if I'm being honest with you, I think secretly, God, you know, I'd love that 11% pay rise, but it's never going to happen. You, you know, when public sector workers... Again, pay freezes, as I think MPs have had a 1% pay rise in the last three years. It is inconceivable to me that that, that kind of differential uh, pay rate should happen. So I guess what I'm saying to you is don't believe everything you read in the press. Um, I would like to reassure you that, not that you'll believe me, that uh, M the expense regime for MPs is considerably different to where it was four or five years ago. We, you would... If you were being objective, you would probably complain that the overbearing regime of IPSA is gold-plated regulation, and we're probably spending more on that than we should in order to make sure that MPs get less expen fewer expenses 
but given that it's the mother of all parliaments and the heart of democracy that was so scandalized five years ago, we probably need to go through that process. But, uh, you, you know, I, I think it's highly unlikely that that kind of 11, I think it's 11% pay rise. I think, I think that's highly unlikely that that will be paid, although I might be wrong. I don't, I don't, I don't even know where that figure has come from. So, um, you know, I'm assuming that's what IPSA say MPs are worth and the country thinks very different. Uh, just by means of a show of hands, who thinks MPs do deserve a pay rise? Blimey. That's, that's quite a decent, I mean, that's, you know, probably... Yeah, but only half of them. Only half the MPs. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, I think MPs deserve a pay rise. I think, I think if you compare it to other public sector stuff, of course they're, they're paid more, but in terms of the sort of people I worked with in local government, uh, in terms of, you know, senior members of staff that make the laws of the land that we all have to live by, I think it's a serious job, and I think, uh, I think you and you, 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 other MPs deserve more money, but I think that's... Um, Thanks, mate. It's all right, mate. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll have a whip round. Uh, right. Um, maybe a question from the balcony. Uh, anyone up on the balcony like this question? Is there anyone indicating the lights are very bright? Okay, no one on the balcony. Uh, yes, you there, mate. What's your name? Uh, Simon. Simon. Uh, I just wondered what the, uh, you think the future holds for you. Uh, what are your future Do you know what, Simon? I don't really know. Uh, I, I, uh, for me personally, I honestly don't know. I, I, um, I should really think about it a bit more, really, uh, given that I'm an MP and uh, you know, I, I find myself in a, a unique position in politics in that if I speak out on issues now, I think I get heard by you know the party leaders, and that's a great opportunity and a great responsibility. Um, if Labour win the next election, you know, do, do I want to be a minister? Does Ed want me to be a minister? I honestly don't know. But I, I, I've been reselected to stand for Parliament in 2015. There's things I want to do. I've got lots of issues I want to campaign on. I'm not quite sure the journey I want to take yet. Um, so I guess you're asking, do I want to be a minister again? I just don't know. I honestly don't know. Gone strictly. Gone strictly. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, <laughs> Um, it is a <laughs> more of a bake-off, man. You cheeky son. I was. Uh, oh dear. I did. There was a, there was an agent. I, I, I don't know whether I should really say this, but I was offered a, a staggering amount of money from someone who said I should be on Celebrity Big Brother. Uh, and uh, you old socialist and your surveillance. You can't get enough of it, Tom. But I said no. <laughs> I said no. I, I mean, I, I, I think I'd be terrible at all that stuff. So uh, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, I interviewed Matthew Paris, and he said that every MP at some point had dreams of being prime minister. Did you? I don't think that's true. I honestly don't think that's true. Um, and I don't think I did actually. Matt. I, I, I mean, the, the sacrifice you make to be prime minister. I think you can make a difference in different roles in Parliament. I, I, strong, I, I mean, uh, my colleagues, some colleagues would strongly disagree with me on this, but I think you can make a difference from the bad benches and as a minister. And, um, and actually, if you're on the bad benches, you can sometimes make a much bigger difference than junior ministers who, frankly, in modern politics, don't really get a looking at decision-making. They're sort of managing other people's decisions, and I've been there on that, and it's not great to be responsible for decisions but not actually make, making them uh, so no I didn't want to be 
Prime Minister. Um, <laughs> in fact, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when <laughs> I was elected, so, um, but I did want to make a difference, you know, and I think that's, I mean, the, the, what unifies MPs from all parties is they go to Parliament because they want to make a difference. They want to make the world a, a better place. They have ideas for how things should change and how it should be run, and some of them manage to enact those ideas and others get really gnarled up and cynical, you know, and, and, the, and the, the hardest thing in politics is to keep your sense of optimism, I think. And I, I, I genuinely, I, I do, I feel more optimistic about the power of politics to change lives than I ever had, actually. Um, and so, you, you know, uh, I'd, I've no idea what my role in it will be, but I, I, feel, I feel a lot of hope and optimism about the future. Feels like a sort of natural place to end, but I'm sort of keen for, for maybe two more questions. But please, one sentence questions, and uh, if I can ask you, Tom, for a one sentence answer, because I'm keen yeah. for people. Now, yeah, right. you're not Mr. Champagne Socialist, are you? Uh, he's gone, unfortunately. <laughs> he's gone, unfortunately. Uh, what's your name? Jonathan. Jonathan, what's your question? Uh, I want to say, is it true that you're one of the only, um, or a handful of MPs who managed to hit the upper limit of the expenses? And if that's the case, then what was it all spent on, please? Um, is it true that you're one of the MPs who hit the upper limit on expenses? And if so, what was it all on, please? Uh, no, it's not true. Uh, most MPs hit the upper limit of expenses. And uh, you, the, the, the thing I think you're referring to, if you want me to be totally candid, is the food allowance. And, uh, <laughs> Shit. And, uh, <laughs> and, that's the well, second that, question. That's yeah? the report. And, and it is true that I did hit the upper limit of the food allowance. <laughs> along with 400 other MPs, and uh, I'm very sorry about that. Oh, my God. <laughs> and one last question from you, yes. It's a question You what? <laughs> okay, okay, I will, I will, I will. Okay, well, self-regulation, it can work, Tom, <laughs> um, Okay, the lady at the back, what's your name? Jane. Jane, what's your question, please? Yes. I beg your pardon? He told me to be brief. Uh, oh, oh, well, qu quickly, did the right Willemann win? Yes, because uh, I think the most important challenge for the, the leader that won was to unify the party, and I think that Ed was probably the, most, the person who could most do that, given the division. With him or against had. him? Sorry? Does he unify the party with him or against him? <laughs> This is a serious question. Uh, well, yeah, the, the, I think if, if uh, the, reason, the reason I'm listening to your question is, I, I wonder, uh, the, the, that's a good question. But um, <laughs> I think the other, lead, the other people that were standing, would have, we'd have ended up in some sort of existential crisis. As the history of the Labour Party always shows, we sort of fall out with each other after elections and have this terrible ideological split based around personalities. And... Um, I think Ed Miliband was the person who most uh, was most able to stop that from happening. And the last two years, the truth is, I, I think it's a miracle that he's held it all together. There we go. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. Uh, thanks for all your questions. Uh, for the wonderful answers.
been, a, uh, it's been another uh, phenomenal night, and uh, 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 thank you, Tom, so much for your, sort of the candid and, uh, and honest nature and the depth of which uh, really some of the issues we covered there, and uh, I'm sure everyone here is grateful for it. Uh, uh, in the next show is on the 27th of no- November. I'm talking to a particular uh, big beast at the moment who's on the verge of confirming uh, for that. The show after that will be the 11th of December, and we're hoping to announce who those guests will be. Um, every single one of these nights has been completely different, um, and... I'm, all of them have been equally as entertaining for, for a variety of different reasons. And tonight, I think, in many ways, has just been probably the most revealing uh, night that we've had here. And uh, I, I, almost to, to sort of respond to it, the man who isn't here, but I think there is something genuinely fascinating about a politician coming here and telling us exactly what it's like to go through those things, the, the stresses on you as an individual, which we very rarely hear. Um, uh, and so I'm so grateful for you, Tom, for, for coming and being so honest. And uh, before we give you, a, a, I'm sure, a rousing round of applause, um, please show your appreciation for everyone at the St James's Theatre. He's up to work tonight, and uh, it's made tonight uh, run very smoothly. And uh, there's, uh, there's a team at Avalon as well who helps me with all this sort of the promotion of it and the PR of it and uh, you know, making sure that we sell tickets and everything. And uh, there's one particular uh, lad called Ben who's been absolutely phenomenal from the start and has been exceptionally supportive and helped in ways that we never understand. And he's uh, unfortunately going to work for a bloody charity. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, it's good for him. It's not good for me. Um, <laughs> but please, uh, Ben Stein has been absolutely marvellous. Uh, give him a round of applause. He's been phenomenal. And he's uh, helped. <laughs> but, you know, because that's the big society, is off now to help people. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've all been marvellous, as you always are. Thank you so much for coming in. I think it shows there's a genuine appetite, not just for politics as entertainment, but, but for ideas, and a, maybe a sort of different side to politics that we don't get anywhere else in the mainstream. So please keep supporting the night. I thank you all for coming. And one last time, please give it up for my guest tonight, the wonderful Mr Tom Watson. <laughs> There you have it, Mr. Tom Watson. Um, fascinating stuff about News International, wasn't it? And uh, and Falkirk. Whether you agree with what he said on all that stuff uh, and his position on Blair and Brown, you know, I think sometimes I it's not my role to to pick up every minor detail. I think you have to leave an audience sometimes to make up their own minds, and I'm sure you'll make up your own mind about some of the things we talked about. I've left in. Uh, the gentleman who very vociferously uh, <laughs> vented his, uh, his feelings, uh, although he didn't do it very articulately. Uh, I left that heckle in. Um, because I don't like to edit the interview bit. I like to sort of leave it as it was and give a, you know, the, the, the honesty of the night, really. Um, but I found it a little frustrating when, I, when we got that heckle because I find the detail of politics exciting as well. It can't all be fireworks and farage. Some of it requires concentration and a, and a bit of extra thought and... For those of us that are political junkies, that's the sort of stuff we enjoy sometimes, and that's going to be the nature of some of the interviews. You know, when you see interviews on TV, they've often been edited down to the highlights. This is about showing politics in a, in a different light uh, and in a better light, and I think uh, that honesty is required. Now, for the next three shows, very excited, got Stella Creasy, who's a rising star in the Labour ranks, the MP for Walthamstow. She's going to join me on the 27th uh, of November, Wednesday the 27th of November. On the 11th of December, I'm going to be joined by David Davis, the man who stood against David Cameron for the Tory leadership in 2005, uh, resigned his seat, you may well remember, uh, about detention without charge. Fascinating individual. One of those politicians that's really hard uh, to pigeonhole. And then in January, January the 29th, I'll be joined by Alan Johnson, the former Home Secretary, the man who could have been leader of the Labour Party, potentially could could have been Prime Minister, and who knows what would have happened then. Stella Creasy is the next one, though. Uh, she's a great politician, Stella. I've met her a couple of times. Uh, really 
really modern, a um, lot of fresh ideas, and really sound, and has led, um, as I'm sure you're all aware, the campaigns against abuse on Twitter, particularly against women on Twitter, and has been a very vociferous and passionate campaigner already in a very short time in Parliament. So that would be absolutely great. Tickets, as always, are available on the website at www.stjamestheatre.co.uk. I hope to see you down there. I'm sorry it's been such a long break, but the Edinburgh Festival we had in August and with Godfrey Bloom pulling out, it's been a few months now since the last episode. What I'm going to try and do in between episodes is do smaller interviews with MPs where I meet them at Parliament uh, and go through, you know, smaller interviews, not in front of a live audience, just because I think they're so long sometimes between podcasts uh, and people tweet me and message me and say, when's the next one coming out? I feel like I'm sort of leaving it too long in between. So I'm going to find a way of doing some smaller interviews um, just to keep it going uh, in between the two. I'm going to try and interview every MP, I think, as well. I don't know how long it's going to take me but I'll try and get around them all. Um, but thank you. Thank you for downloading and subscribing. And if you enjoy it, please tell your friends. Until next time, I've been Matt Ford. This has been The Political Party. And uh, depending on where you listen, when you listen to this, I hope you have a great weekend. Cheers, bye.